Well, those 12 verses are all we know about the Magi, and we're going to be studying the Magi today. And um, uh, uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, creative work down the centuries to try and embellish the story of the visit of the Magi. And uh, one of those is by T.S. Eliot, who's a famous poet, some of you will know, and he wrote a poem called The Journey of the Magi. And I want you to uh, hear this, we've um, got it on the screen, um, because it tells me two things. One is, there was a real journey, and it wasn't a Christmas-type journey, it was a tough journey. And secondly, it raises the question, were these people changed, these wise men, these magi, were they changed permanently by what they experienced at that first Christmas visit? A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end we preferred to travel all night sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information. And so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember. And I would do it again, but set down this, set down this, where we led all that way for birth or death. There was a birth, certainly, we had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. I don't like to discourage you, but I have 18 points this morning. 
I have six myths to, to bust, six facts we can count on, and six questions that need answers. And the first myth is definitely three wise men. We don't know that. There were three gifts, certainly. But down the ages, there have been uh, various uh, uh, suggestions that there may have been more. Um, Gary Larson from the far side suggested that there was a fourth one, as you will see on the screen. Unbeknownst to most theologians, there was a fourth wise man who was turned away for bringing a fruitcake. Some Eastern Orthodox churches speak of 12 coming. And like much that surrounds the Christmas story, our understanding is shaped by the paintings of the old masters in the Middle Ages. That's myth one. Myth two, they were kings, undoubtedly. Well, they may have been, but the word used to describe them was magi. And that doesn't suggest this. It doesn't even imply that they were wise men. They were just magi. And it's likely that this idea is rooted in the Old Testament where it says at various points that, for example, in Psalm 72, may kings fall down before him. So the word was that these were kings. I think the best uh, description that we can use with certainty is that they were distinguished foreigners which doesn't trip off the tongue when you say we're going to talk about the visit of the distinguished foreigners uh, of uh, uncertain number but that's the truth we don't know that they were kings myth number three they came on camels now camels were beasts of burden in those days not a very comfortable means of transport it would be the equivalent today of them coming in a Ford Transit van. And if they were kings or even wise men or just distinguished foreigners, it's unlikely that they lumped along on camels. They probably came on Arabian stallions, which was the way in which people of note and people who had any money at all travelled in those days. Camels may have been there bringing the goods that they had with them, but it's unlikely that they were uh, camel riders themselves. You can see your Christmas cards disappearing with every word that I mention. But there is more. The, the fourth myth is that they made their journey 218 years ago this year. Oh no, they didn't. Because Jesus was born about six years before Christ. If you understand me. Because we know that King Herod, who forms part of the story, definitely died in a very unpleasant circumstances in the year 4 BC, as we now number it. And therefore, all the events of the Christmas story took place before year zero, as determined by the popes in the Middle Ages. Myth number five. They were there for the stable photos. <laughs> oh no, they weren't. Nor were they there 12 days after. They will have started their journey when the star appeared, announcing a significant 
cosmic event. It's more likely between one and two years after Jesus, uh, 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 before Jesus was born, that they started their journey. Just think about this. When it says in Matthew they arrived, it doesn't say they arrived to the stable, it says they arrived to the house where the child, Jesus, was with his mother. Not the stable where the baby was. So I'm afraid as you leave church and you see uh, the little cameo there, you'll have to recognise that there's a myth that is perpetuated today. Why else would Herod ask when the star was first seen and then determine uh, that the children of Bethlehem should be culled if they had been born in the two-year period up to when they visited? And sixth myth, they were called Melchior, Caspar and Balthazar and if you like they came from Persia, India and Arabia. These names first appear in the Christian calendar in about 500 AD from some writings in Alexandria in Egypt. And it goes on to say that some were young, some were old, and they represented different parts of the world. Well, we don't know what their age was, and we don't know where they came from, but we know that it's a guess that they were called Melchior and Caspar and Balthazar. Okay, I hope I haven't ruined your Christian faith by uh, uh, demythologizing this. My wife did ask me after the first service whether or not the tooth fairy exists, and I told her I was going to be agnostic on that. And as for Father Christmas, I'm not even going to go there. So six myths to bust, okay. Six things that we can count on now. The first is that they came from the east. It says in the text, they came literally from where the sun rises. And unless they came from India, which was certainly to the east of uh, uh, Palestine, it's likely that they came from Persia, Iran today, part of the Parthian Empire. The only inhabited area on the east of the Roman Empire, as it was then, and a place where uh, people would travel, uh, uh, but not be part of the Roman Empire. They were outsiders. You may remember from the story of Pentecost uh, that the people who were there in Jerusalem at the time included people from Parthia. So that's the first thing we can be sure of, that they came from the east. The second is that they studied the stars. The majority religion in Persia was Zoroastrianism and there are still some Zoroastrians around today. And the thing we know about the faith of the Zoroastrians was and is today that they gave a particular significance to star signs, to astrology, to astronomy. Again, suggesting that link uh, with Persia for the home of these people. And here's another interesting thing that I discovered, that the priests in Zoroastrianism are called magos, from which we get the word magic. And again, making the link with the magi that we know from the Matthew account. So they studied the stars. The third thing we know is that they met Herod. 
I've shown you, this is not a colour picture of him originally, but uh, all the statues that there are make him look so saintly uh, that they, I think it's more likely that the actors who played him later on were a greater, uh, a, a more accurate um, a picture. Great Herod the Great uh, seized power in the area that we now know as Palestine and Israel in the year 37 B.C., and he reigned until 4 BC when he died of uh, such a uh, painful illness that the accounts say that he sought to kill himself by stabbing himself. And Herod, was a, he had, he had uh, uh, two aspects to him. On the one side, he was a great builder, and anyone who's been to Israel will know the great fortresses of Masada, uh, the great uh, place of Herodium, which he built for his own uh, entombment, uh, the port of Caesarea, where he used uh, new techniques for those days to create a harbour, um, and the second temple in Jerusalem, which was of such great significance in Jesus' life. So he was a great architect, but he was also a brutal dictator. He was hated by the Jewish priesthood and leadership because he was not a Jew by origin. And you can therefore imagine how alarmed he was when the Magi said that they had come to see the man born as king of the Jews. Fourthly, they were the cause of children dying, what became known as the massacre of the innocents, the boys of Bethlehem. Now, the estimate of the number killed has varied over the centuries. It reached a peak in the Middle Ages where it was said to be 64,000 children uh, who were brutally massacred by Herod. It's not mentioned in any of the other historical accounts of the life of Herod, and people have therefore concluded that it was probably a fable introduced at an early stage to show how bad Herod was. But architects in the 20th century have reckoned that the town of Bethlehem at that time probably had about 300 houses. And by any stretch of the imagine, getting 64,000 children between the ages of zero and two into Bethlehem at that time uh, stretches the imagination. They say it's more likely to be six or seven now, why is that not mentioned in Herod's other accounts? Well, for a man who murdered his wife, his mother-in-law, three of his sons and 300 military leaders, this was not newsworthy stuff. But it's still true, we believe, that he, uh, he killed uh, the children in Bethlehem, just to be sure. The fifth truth that we can be sure of is that they came to worship. They didn't just come to pay homage to a significant birth. They came, as they said, where is he who has been born of the king, uh, king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And it said that when they found Jesus, they worshipped him. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. And the sixth truth that we can be sure of is that they brought gifts, three gifts, Gold for its value, frankincense, 
which was identified with the priestly role of acting as a go-between between man and God, and myrrh, which signified death or embalming. And interestingly, linking it back to Persia, those three commodities were known to be available, mined and grown uh, in Persia. Okay, and now six questions that need answers, a few of which have them, I have to say. First of all, who is the source of the story? It might have been Mary. If you think about the characters in this story, the only one who is known to have given any uh, uh, information about the early years of Jesus in the Gospels was, was Mary. But here's an interesting fact. If you look at the four Gospels, the one that most uh, readily identifies with Mary is Luke. That's why if you read the uh, Christmas story, you'll find very little in Mark, hardly anything in John, a little bit in Matthew, and most of it is in Luke. So if she is the source of the story, and it's conceivable that they will have told about their journey, about the visit to Herod, and about the uh, decision not to go back on the same way, it's conceivable that she is the source of that story. But I don't think it's likely because of the Matthew link and not the Luke link. Here's an intriguing thought, that these distinguished foreigners were in touch with the early church chroniclers. So that raises the question which comes up in the Eliot uh, uh, poet, poem. Were their lives changed for good as a result of this visit? Or was it just a one-off experience and they went back and said, oh, how interesting. So it's possible that they became believers uh, who had connections with the early church. Second question, how did the star guide them? It's conceivable that a star movement could have directed them generally from the east towards the west. That's believable. But bear this in mind, Bethlehem is about five miles from Jerusalem. And so if the star had taken them in that direction, it's understandable that they would think that they would need to go to the center, the capital, to look for a king. That's understandable. <coughs> but the detail of five miles and a, so, a solar system being able to direct them not only to that degree of detail, but also into the very house where Jesus was then staying, that does stretch the imagination. So maybe it's not that their star told them that alone, but that the star and the dreams that they were open to, because the dream told them not to stay, not to go back to Jerusalem, it could well be that there was a dream as well that went with that um, guiding. Question three. What became of the gifts? There's much room for imagination here. Some traditions had it that it was used to pay for the journey to Egypt. Others that Jesus retained it and it was then stolen by Judas. Some believe that the casket in which the gifts were stored was found and is now in the monastery on Mount Athos in Greece. And we don't know whether any of those have any substance. Fourthly, what became of the wise men? 
Again, there's a lot of conjecture here. Tradition has it that they were martyred for proclaiming Jesus as Messiah in the countries to which they returned. We don't know. But going back to this question about who is the source of the story, I think we have some grounds for believing that they lived on and their lives were in some way changed for the better. Question five. Why do we associate the story with the epiphany? The epiphany is a really big event in many countries. Ask Adrian and Briselda what they're doing in Spain today. And in many Catholic countries, it's almost as big as Christmas. It's a huge event. Well, epiphany means the manifestation or the showing forth, and it commemorates Jesus being revealed to the Magi. And it was celebrated 12 days after Christmas um, uh, in the early 2nd century, before even the Christmas holiday was established. Why 12 days? Well, like other Christian seasons, the church was pragmatic when it wanted to fix dates in the year for events around Jesus to be commemorated. And there was, way back indeed in Egypt, 2,000 years before Christ, the winter solstice, which was celebrated on the 6th of January in our current calendars. Um, They used to worship uh, uh, gods on that particular day. And it appears that the church thought, let's be realistic about this, and as people became Christians, they appropriated that particular day for celebrating the, the uh, showing forth of Jesus to the, uh, 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 to the world. And so we come to our final question, why does it feature in the Bible? Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So what teaching or rebuking or training in righteousness do we take from this story? Well, for a start, it does underline that Jesus is not simply king of the Jews. He was the king of the Jews because the Jews were the entry point for people to understand that God is the God of the whole universe. That's one possibility. It could be because of the three gifts that Jesus came as king, as priest, and as sacrifice. But here's a so what thought that occurred to me as I read and reread the passage, and it may be this. These distinguished foreigners were outsiders to God's chosen people, and they had something within them telling them that there was something significant that they were missing in their lives. And they came to God's people and got no help at all. They came to Herod. And his reaction was a reaction of, how does this impact me? And he was threatened by the question, where is the king of the Jews? Herod then involved the the Jewish leaders and said, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they knew the answer to that and they gave the answer. 
But why didn't they go with the Magi to find the Messiah? Because they were more interested in study than they were in finding Jesus. So I asked myself, what about us? Am I missing the questions that people are asking? Am I threatened if they don't come in terms that I determine or conform to my expectations? What if their lifestyle or personality threatens my neat little world view? Am I open to the idea that God may be bigger than the box that I've made for him? So as we start this new year, let's ask the question, are there people around who appear to be uninterested in anything to do with church or with religion, but who are asking questions that find their answer only in Jesus? Amen. Have a little time of silence now.